Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 19th, 2016, and this is episode, uh, what is it? Episode 1830 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Tuesday. Tuesdays are just Jack shows. That means they are shows chosen by the audience. Today is going to be. Power Tools for the Homestead. I'm going to talk today about what I mean by Power Tools to the Homestead and how that's not exactly the same thing as like Power Tools for the Wood Shop or Power Tools for the Metal Shop or Power Tools for the Cabinet Shop, but Power Tools for the Homestead. Not that there's not a tremendous amount of overlap. Not that having a fully equipped uh, wood shop might not be nice on your homestead and could allow you to do a lot of work for yourself or even have a business, but... In general, homesteaders have certain things they have to contend with all the time. And this is for those things. There's always something that needs to be built or something that's broken and then needs to be fixed or something that ain't quite working right and needs to be tweaked. There's always something like that. And the tools that I have for today are to address that reality. Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year... That was the episode, and Alex Shrugged has two for us today at tspwiki.com. And I have a special announcement from Alex. He now has a public email address where you can email him. It is Alex Shrugged History, all one word, Alex Shrugged History at gmail.com. If you have suggestions or things that you'd like to see in the history segment or questions or things like that, please email Alex. And I would say put TSPC history in the subject line so he'll know that it's a... I guess with that email address, it's probably going to one box, but I do that anyway just for the heck of it. TSPC history, questions, ideas, thoughts for Alex Shrugg's history segment. Today, the year 1830, because we have episode 1830, I have Stop the Gin Mills, Drink More Beer. As much as I like to drink beer, I'm going to really do the other one. The Thresher Riots are in full swing. Because, boy, does that make us think of the modern day in more than one way. And in other news, the first sewing machine is patented in France. The factory burns to the ground as workers feel that their jobs are going bye-bye. A German industrialist discovers paraffin. He was experimenting with coal distillates. An efficient means to extract paraffin racks won't be developed until the 1850s. And the Book of Mormon is published. This is also the year the first Latter-day Saints church is established although the movement will not officially receive that name until 1838. I'm going to read for you the Thresher Riots are in full swing. It is summertime near East Kent, and it is the last straw for the workers. The mobile-powered threshing machine is putting swing threshers out of work. Threshing was once a manual skill. One must remove the head of the grain stalk without destroying it. Threshing machines have been used here and there, but with the steam engine powering them, a threshing machine can go anywhere. The swing threshers see the, their doom, so they break their machines. Thousands of riots break out across England. England is used to a certain amount of violence and intimidation between the workers and landowners. It's an old dance, but the tune has changed. Threats, fire, and terror continue into the next year. After the swing trials, 19 men will swing from the gallows, but this marks a turning point. The poor laws will be changed. The dole will be increased. Workhouses for the poor will increase, but the number of poor will not decrease. It's a trap. My take by Alex Shrugged. 
In the USA, poor farms were eventually replaced by Social Security benefits. Migrant workers received unemployment pay. Initially, these programs worked, but 13 million poor in 1960 that we tried to lift out of poverty by spending trillions of dollars still numbered 13 million by 1980. We hadn't helped, not even a little. Quote, The most compelling explanation for the marked shift in the fortunes of the poor is that they continued to respond, as they always had, to the world as they found it, but that we, meaning not the poor and undisadvantaged, had changed the rules of the world, not of our world, just of theirs. The first effect of the new rules was to make it profitable for the, profitable for the poor to behave in the short term in ways that were destructive in the long term. Their second effect was to mask these long-term losses to subsidize irretrievable mistakes. We tried to provide more for the poor and produce more poor instead. We tried to remove the barriers to escape from poverty and inadvertently built a trap. Charles Murray, Losing Ground, page 9. Um, yeah, and there's two things there, isn't there? There's Alex Shrug's take, and I think most of the people in this audience are aware that when we create a massive welfare program and incentivize non-productivity, that we actually will have more non-productivity and therefore we'll have more poor people. And then we'll have poor people to become generationally poor. And I think that we all get that. So I'm going to let Alex's take speak for itself and I'll give you my take on technology. This is where the people that look at the modern um, level of automation and new technologies sit back and say, you see, this is nothing new. The threshers got jobs in factories. The threshers got jobs working on threshing machines. The threshers got jobs, you know, uh, doing all different types of new things as the industrial age came on and created more and more opportunity for people. But you see, this is one of the things I want to point out about automation and what it's doing to humanity. If we don't figure out how to embrace it and figure out how to actually make it profitable for people to do good things in their lives in the absence of what we have called up to this point gainful employment. Here's the deal. Before there was any automation, before there were any fields as we know them under the plow, man was in his natural state, hunter-gatherers. Modern diseases were largely unknown, and while there was clan warfare, there was no such thing as warfare like we see today where one nation rises against another nation and kills tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of people. The potential for such things was non-existent. Wars were inherently self-limiting. And human beings were largely fulfilled by the things that were around them. With the dawn of agriculture, we also had the dawn of slavery. You realize the two go hand in hand. Once we figured out that we could put the field under the plow and we could cultivate crops and we could store those crops and we could create a civilization, we needed somebody to do the work. And man was pulled further from his natural state. Over time, we did begin to realize as a species that slavery was inherently wrong. And there were rebellions, some peaceful and some bloodshed, that were necessary to pretty much dissolve slavery into all but, well, let's just call them what they are, the shittiest parts of the world today still have actual practices of slavery in the traditional sense. But as we continue to develop these technologies and more and more people did more and more work that really wasn't necessary, only useful. And understand that necessary and useful are different. And we moved more and more to people working what we call white-collar jobs. And those are jobs that if nobody did them, I don't know how much would really change in the world. There might be a few less doodads and gadgets distributed, but in the end, 
especially now, all of that, all of those logistics, shipping, etc., can be automated. So people moved even further from where they were, and the slavery of chains was replaced with the slavery of taxation, necessary to run society as we have it today, if we were going to have everybody gainfully employed. The human of today is not a natural human being. He's a domesticated animal rather than the feral species he's supposed to be. And in this concept of technology and automation, it only stands to be logical that we'll reach a point where we've worn that out and there's nowhere left to go and no further to pull man from who and what he is truly supposed to be. And you can figure out for yourself who and what you think you're truly supposed to be. But I think if we ask most people to be honest, to separate themselves from whatever political affiliation that they have, and even religious affiliations, and simply exist in the spiritualism of their religion, whatever that might be, and let go of the dogma, and sit back and ask, the way that we live today, is this a right and good way for human beings to spend the 70 to 80 years on average that they're given. And I think most people would look at that and say no. And if that correct, if that direction is incorrect, if that is not the way we should be going, doesn't it only stand to reason at some point we will reach the end of that, that path? And we'll have to start to figure out how do we coexist in a modern world with man actually behaving the way man is supposed to behave? I think we can do it, but gee, guys, guess what? We get to live at the point where we have to figure out how. We can't look back and admire people who did it. We have to be the ones that get it done. My take by Jack Spirico. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And then we can get right into the topic here today of homestead tools, specifically power tools. I want to remind you, this is a listener uh, voted on show, and you can vote for the August shows right now. And I'm going to campaign one more time for, uh, you know, vote vote on that airsoft topic, guys. I, I promise you, no matter what your prejudice against airsoft is, I can make a show about that. Pretty interesting if you give me a shot. But in any event, there's five shows to be chosen for August, and whatever the audience says will be the way that they are. Um, as we look today at Power Tools for the Homestead, again, I want to be clear on the concept for the homestead, not the wood shop. There are tools that belong in both locations, but I'm talking day-to-day and project-based homesteading stuff here, not cabinet-making or something like that. The tools I want to talk about today are tools I think should be on every homestead from small to large, the things you find yourself using monthly, if not weekly. It seems something always needs fixing or building on a homestead. I will give some specific brand recommendations today and even some product-specific links in the notes But I want to be honest, most power tools today are quite well made, and you generally get what you pay for. 
if you buy knockoff brands off of like the Walmart shelf or something, you're probably not going to get that great a tool. But I mean, I've even bought some of the low end stuff here and there from Harbor Freight, and you know what? It works, and it's inexpensive enough that as long as it's not something you really depend on, one one breaks, you can just replace it. So don't feel you have to be like me and basically bleed DeWalt yellow in your brand loyalty because I am a DeWalt guy. In the list, on the site, if you read it, I don't make a big differentiation between cordless and plug-in tools, but in the show today, I'm going to talk a lot about the trade-offs between each of them, and indeed, there's quite a bit there. So let's talk a little bit more about what I mean between homestead tools and woodshop tools. So let's look at a tool that I think you would consider to be a woodshop tool, um, a, a table-based skill saw or jigsaw, for instance. This is something that we would make very intricate patterns with, or a bandsaw even more so, having more ability. And a bandsaw, for those that don't know, is a great big long blade. It's like a band, and it spins in a big loop, almost like a big, looks like kind of like shaped like a bow and arrow. And it, it moves at a high rate of speed and allows you to do very intricate cutting and to make very intricate shapes. But, you know, a, a handheld jigsaw or a skill saw, which is one of the tools on my list, would be something that you could cut a curve or a cope, as we call it, into plywood uh, if you were framing up the outside of a, a greenhouse. Okay, And it, you, you would be more likely to use these other tools inside a shop environment where this handheld tool is going to make a lot more sense for you with the outdoor stuff and the stuff that always needs doing and the stuff that you, you that maybe don't need to be as precise with intricacies is be one example. Another example would be a lathe, right? A, a wood lathe, even or a metal lathe, but a wood lathe we'll, we'll go with because we're talking mostly about things that work with wood today. Um, that you could make tables, uh, table legs with, or a lamp with, or you know, turn things to make handcrafts with. It's more of a shop tool. You don't generally walk around with a lathe, you know, in, in, on your hip, like you might a cordless drill, and um, or even a drill with a cord in it. You know, as long as you have power to a place, you can use that. I'm talking more about the stuff that you would use if you're building a shed or a greenhouse or uh, doing any one of numerable everyday prepper projects. And I'm also giving you the stuff that if I have these things, I can do almost anything. It's not that I could maybe do it better if I had a bandsaw or a router or a lathe, but from a practical standpoint, I can get most things done with the tools that I'm going to go over today. See, the homestead environment is what this is all about to me. First of all, homestead environments are based on three things. You have all these project-based things that you want to get done. Then the fundamental Murphy's reality that stuff breaks And then on top of that, we're almost always short on time. We always have more projects than time, and something always breaks when we really don't have time for it to break, and it needs to be fixed now. And many times, the things that break need to be fixed right, and that's going to take a Saturday. But they need to be fixed now so that something doesn't blow up, break, burn up, or an animal doesn't die. So that's the reality that we're dealing with, and that's why I love the tools that I have for you today. The first tool, and I think if, if you were going to tell me, Jack, you're going to have to do everything with hand tools, except you can have one tool, and one tool only that's a power tool, I would have a cordless drill. And I know some of you might think, wow, I don't really get that. I mean, cutting wood, yeah, you know, 
whipping out the crosscut saw every time I needed to cut something, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I would want either a circular or a reciprocating saw as my second choice. And if you gave me three tools, I would have a drill, a reciprocating saw, and a circular saw. And even if I can't make it master carpenter style, I can get almost anything built with just those three tools um, because of how much it does. But a drill... So I'm going to have some other tools to do some of the things we're going to talk about today, but a drill doesn't just make holes and stuff. You put a screwdriver or other bit in it, and it drives things into wood and other materials. You can also put things in a drill like a wire brush to clean things up. You could put a small rotary blade that actually can get in and cut things in angles that you normally can't get to. And I'm actually a believer in many situations of two is one and one is none, right? So I'm a big believer in having a plug-in kind of heavy-duty drill for heavier work and a good quality cordless drill. I really am. And uh, in most instances where you need to use a heavy-duty drill, you can you can get power to it, even if you ever run an extension cord or something like that uh, for a, t a temporary purpose. So my drill of choice, as you might imagine, is an 18-volt DeWalt. And that's kind of what I've settled on on most of my cordless tools is 18-volt DeWalt tools. And I put out a post today on a really great DeWalt drill, but it's a lower end. It's an entry-level DeWalt drill. It comes with a charger and two batteries. Those are slightly smaller amp-hour batteries than your traditional heavier DeWalt drills, uh, but all of that for $99 on Prime with free shipping. And I'll have a link to that tool and kind of like If you want a higher-end, heavier-duty cordless-to-wall drill, the one I recommend. But I don't think you can go wrong with just about anybody's uh, cordless drill today. Except maybe if you get down to like the levels of like a Black and & Decker. And even that's better than having nothing. What I'm looking for in a drill is power. I want it to be able to power uh, through tough jobs. I want it to be able to, uh, and almost every drill does this today. You know, it used to be the case. I want to be able. I want it to have a, a chuck, which where you you hold the bit in, where I can remove it and tighten it just by holding on to it and and operating the drill. I don't want to have to use a chuck key to get that done in my cordless drills. And it to me again is like the tool. I don't know that a week has gone by since I've gotten on this farm that I haven't reached for my DeWalt drill. Let me tell you how I came a DeWalt fan. It's in the article and, and, and why I had to buy a new drill. 20 years ago, back in 1996, I was uh, superintendent for a company that was doing outside plant cable TV work uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we had a general contractor named Moztec, and I think they're still around. And uh, we were putting cable TV in across all of Fort Worth, all the way down to Benbrook, if you know the area, and all the way north of where I live now. Pretty much the whole uh, Fort Worth side of the Metroplex, Arlington, Grand Prairie, all of this stuff. And um, I'm driving down the road one day to check on one of my crews, and I see laying in the middle of this road an 18-volt cordless DeWalt drill. And I know it's a cable TV guy's because it's got a 625 coring tool in it. You don't need to know, worry about what that is. It's just coring cables, a lot of work, and you need a tough drill for it. And only a CATV guy would have this tool. And it also had this piece of copper on it that was made to hang from a belt, kind of a homemade belt hanger that it, the guy had put on it. So I took it to the general contract. I said, let all the crews know and all the crew leaders know that somebody found it turned in a drill. But don't tell them, you know, it had a 625 tool in it. Don't tell them. Just ask them to identify the drill. 
And I mean, it'd be really obvious if it was your drill. So two guys said they lost drills. I don't know whether they were lying or not, but neither one of them could identify the drill's characteristics. Uh, neither one of them knew that it was 18-volt-to-wall, which, hell, that would have been a good guess. It's what everybody used. So I took this drill home, and I went and got a charger at Home Depot. Back then, the chargers for the old NICAD batteries were 50 bucks. So for 50 bucks, I had this $200-plus-dollar drill. And that drill died this summer, 20 years. Now, it looked pretty old when I got it. It was scraped and scratched up. Now, that kind of works hard on a tool, but I would say it was a couple years old. So it was well over 20 years old. Do you know what died? Somebody used it that comes to this house or lives in this house. I won't say which one it is, but it ain't me. And then they put it away by sticking it in a bucket. The idea was to put it in this bucket and stick the lid on the bucket, and then that way it would be safe and it would be where the person was going to go do this work tomorrow, uh, continue to do work. And they didn't put the lid on the bucket, and then we got four inches of rain, and, of course, the bucket filled up. And it sat in the water, and it burnt out the electronics. I think that drill would have lasted another 20 years. That's why I love DeWalt drills. So I found this kind of low-end DeWalt, entry-level drill, and I got it because I have all of the power accessories and adapters for everything else. And this kind of gives me into moving through the rest of the tools. When it comes to cordless tools... I don't care if you like Milwaukee, Ryobi, Bosch Tech, DeWalt. Um, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. Those are all really good tool makers. Um, what I would shy away from is like your Black and Deckers and stuff like that. Once you pick one, I think it makes sense to stick with it because then you've got batteries that work for everything. It opens up buying bare tools. So bare tools means... For instance, the drill that I'm recommending, the lower-end entry-level drill, if you just want the drill, it's 40 bucks on Prime if you get no batteries and no chargers. I could have done that, but I wanted to test this kit out. And the drill set that's a, a much heavier-duty DeWalt drill is like $226 with a charger and a couple of the larger battery packs. They all work in the same tool, by the way. And... Uh, and the drill itself. But you can get the bare drill, a heavier-duty version, which I'll probably eventually buy to replace my one that I lost, for $120 using your existing technology. So if you lose a tool, you break a tool, somebody leaves your tool where it shouldn't be and it gets damaged, you can replace just the tool, not the battery packs. And if you have battery packs that, that work all across all your tools, I think you're better off. And there'll be people today that say Bosch Tech's better than DeWalt or Milwaukee's better than Bosch Tech. Again... I think most manufacturers today make pretty damn good tools. And all you got to do is pull up the reviews on Amazon to see, you know, when you see 95%, 90% or more people with four and five star reviews on a tool, it's not a piece of shit when there's thousands of reviews on it. And I think having like a brand, brand loyalty is one thing, but having a brand snobbery I think is another. So keep that in mind as we go forward. So the, the, the drill, a very important tool. The next is a reciprocating saw also known as a Sawzall. And this is another tool that I think you can, and this is where I think you, you get into kind of being smart about your money. My belief is you buy good quality cordless Sawzall that matches your existing equipment. And then you get an inexpensive plug-in Sawzall or reciprocating saw from kind of a different manufacturer, lower-end manufacturer. Because you can, you can get some Sawzalls, plug-in Sawzalls for very little money. And when you get your plug-in reciprocating saw, you know, what you're going to get is a tool that even with a lower-grade tool is generally going to have more power 
available to you in cutting than a, a, a rechargeable tool. Skill makes a, a pretty good 9-amp reciprocating saw. It sells for about 57 bucks. Porter Cable makes a 7.5-amp. I really think stepping up to like the 9-amp or 11-amp saws makes a lot of um, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense in the plug-in versions. Um, Makita makes one for about 100 bucks as a plug-in saw. The Walt makes a, a damn good um, uh, saw, 10-amp reciprocating saw that's $80. These are all good saws, actually really good saws. Now, the reason I say to get both is, I'll give you a for instance. So we decided to move my beehives. Well, when Michael Jordan installed them for me in the uh, northeast corner of the property, he cemented them into the ground as best he could by digging a hole and dropping a cinder block in there and then putting a 4x4 four four in and then pouring concrete. Uh, getting them out of the ground wasn't going to happen. It might happen someday. I might have my helper do it. But for now, I just needed the, the platforms down. So I took my reciprocating saw out there. Yes, it is a DeWalt. And another thing I suggest you look for in a reciprocating saw, though I, I don't know that I've ever seen any that, I, that won't do this, usually you can put the blade either vertical or horizontal. So you can turn it horizontal where you hold it upside down. You can cut very flush to the ground. So I take my DeWalt saw, pop that in, and I cut through all three of those 4x4s in a couple of minutes. And they're flush to the ground. And if I ever want to do anything there, they got to come out. But for now, they're good. And pull it out, took aside the exterior grade plywood, the rest of all the stuff went in the dumpster and gone, and it's done. If I only had a plug-in reciprocating saw, then I would have to either take a generator out there. Uh, I guess I could have pulled my truck around and used my battery pack out of my truck. Uh, or I would have had to run an extension cord, probably plugged in two or three extension cords to reach where I needed to be. So having the freedom of the rechargeable was great. However, tools break, tools get lost, tools get loaned out. Sometimes when you're doing a project, you have two people working together and both need the same tool at the same time. As long as there's power there, two is one and one is none. Additionally, plug-in power tools generally do have more reliable full tilt power through. So I think that's one that makes sense to have both. If I get one or the other, I'm going to get a good quality cordless reciprocating saw. And I'm going to say that with the next one, too, and with the drill. If I can only have one or the other, I want the um, rechargeable battery pack-based tool. The next one is a circular saw. A circular saw, I'm a big fan of DeWalt, but again, whatever brand you want. And I own a plug-in, I think it's a skill that I picked up for, I don't know, 40 bucks at Home Depot or Lowe's, you know, the one of the red skills, uh, a plug-in version, and I have the DeWalt rechargeable. And again, you make me pick between the two, I'll pick one over the other. But there's been times, for instance, that I see this is where I think this works out. If you have like a shop building and I've got stuff sitting in there and I've got you know skill saws and, and whatever in there, and I'm out working and I realize I need a piece of wood and I take measurements and I need to cut it, and the extra wood's all the way back in the shop because I didn't think I was gonna need it. I don't drag my rechargeable saw with me, I go back take the measurements, cut that piece of wood with the electric saw, and bring it back out. So that's that's an example of where it helps to have two. And again, if one breaks, you still have another one. And they're not that expensive. But I really believe, in most instances, you give me a drill, a reciprocating saw, and a circular saw, I can build almost anything. I can certainly build a shed. 
That doesn't mean I wouldn't be helped out by a nail gun or a jigsaw or a chop saw or uh, an impact driver or something like that, but I can screw with the drill. I can drill holes and pilot holes with the drill. Um, if I can't nail and I need to do what's called toenailing, so toenailing, if you think about taking putting a stud in where you've got a, a, a a two by four going to a two by four, and you've got end going a flat like a T. Like take your take your right hand if you're not familiar with this this terminology and hold it up like you're going to do a karate chop, straight vertical down to the desk. Point it straight up at the sky and take your left hand, your palm straight over, and make a T. Now imagine you want to bind those two pieces of wood together. Well, a lot of people would think, well, you just put nails or screws through the back of your left hand now, let's say, and into the the tips of your fingers. That's a very weak joint. It's very, very weak, and it's also not possible a lot of times because the wood that you're attaching the, the other piece to, the back side there might not be accessible. It might be laying flat on concrete, for instance, for framing or something like that. So what we do is toenailing, and that's where the nail goes in at an angle. So it goes in above and comes down through. And if you don't understand that, just look it up. Well, you give me three-inch high-quality screws and a drill, And I can take a drill bit and pop a little bit of a hole in where I want that nail to go in, turn the drill 45 degrees, go in a couple inches, swap the bit out, zoop, in goes the screw. And I did a lot of that with the quail aviary, uh, aviary, using doing exactly that. In fact, I built that entire aviary using a drill, a reciprocating saw, a circular saw, and a hammer. That's, that's really an, a, a measuring tool and a marker. I really did the whole thing, and well, hognose pliers for the, the hardware cloth. But really, that's all that I've used. I did all the flooring. When we moved in, we have a, a, a 12 by 16 building that uh, we use now as a duck house. Before, we used it as a chicken house. It was already here. It's, one of the, it's like a tough shed, but it had no floor. Like, you walked in, and you're looking at the ground. Well, this doesn't work. It's not good for cleaning out. So I put a whole plywood floor in, basically like a subfloor in a house. I used the, the drill, the reciprocating saw, and a circular saw. That was it. Um, I don't know why I didn't use my jigsaw, other than I already had the tools out there, because there's some fitting of the plywood where maybe that would have helped. But absolutely, those three tools, if you are going to have only three tools on your homestead, I would have a drill, a reciprocating saw, and a circular saw. And I would I would target having a rechargeable, and an electric version of each. The next tool, um, I would say that it's valuable enough that if you don't have the money for one of each, get the plug-in style jigsaw. A jigsaw, you hold it in your hand, and it's for cutting thinner stock, and it's, again, for making curves or intricate cuts in things like plywood and paneling. Um, I don't even own a jigsaw with a uh, battery attachment, like a, a battery one. I only have, and I have, it's like a skill. And I think, again, it was one of those things that's like 40 bucks, 50 bucks at Lowe's. And uh, it's a great little saw. And whenever I need it, it's there. And yes, I need power for it. But in general, when I'm making those types of cuts, I'm generally not out on the property. I'm inside when I make it. I'm doing different types of projects. Though there are times when I have to come get it and, You know, hopefully I have power wherever I'm at or I'm running extension cords. I have to bring the material in. And it's probably one of those things that I will buy a, a, a DeWalt jigsaw because everything else I have is 18-volt DeWalt. And, again, I want to remind you guys, whenever you hear me say DeWalt, it's not this fanatical loyalty. It's, it's good equipment. It works good. It never lets me down. And it's what I have. So if you want Bosch, Ryobi, whatever, that's fine. Okay? Uh, but a jigsaw. And, and that tool 
is not like the most valuable tool that I own. But when you need it, nothing else will really do really do well. For instance, when we did the ends of the greenhouse, we had uh, T111 siding to put on, and it had to be coped because it was round. You ain't doing that with a circular saw. So whenever you start having to make rounded cuts and things like that, if you're going to do it with you know a tool, a power tool, your jigsaw is what you reach for. The next one would be a chop saw. Now, I don't use my chop saw as much as a lot of guys would probably use, and a chop saw is kind of like a radial, radial arm saw, but if you don't know what a, radial, a chop saw is, you probably don't know what a radial arm saw is. Here's the difference. A chop saw, you have a, a circular saw blade, and you have a handle, and you have a table that, that, that it sits on in a, a, a frame, and you put your piece of stock in there, you push the button, and the blade spins, and you bring it down, just like it says chop, and it chops. And it's adjustable, so you can cut angles. That's one of the really great things about it. And you get very straight, very precise cuts. And if you're doing something where you need to cut, let's say, 20 pieces of wood all the same length, it's much faster to process. And you can even build a jig, for instance, create something that's a stop, so that you push it your, your stock through, it hits that stop point, and you know I've got three feet or whatever. And when I get down to where that one's less than three feet, That goes in the scrap wood pile. Grab your next piece of stock. It can all, you know, this is for framing where you want to make miter joints. It's where you have two angles coming together, like in a door frame. If you look at a standard door frame and you see they're not, they're not flat to flat. They have that 45 degree angle that gives them strength and makes them look nice. Does all those types of things for you. It also does a variety of other things. Um, we've used it for cutting three and four inch PVC pipe, and it's it's much preferable to do that than to sit there with a hacksaw or a, a, like a, what do you call it, a miter saw cutting through, a fine blade saw cutting through it. You get a much straighter, precise cut. So uh, chop saw does so much for you. Uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Deere, who's a, is an amateur woodworker and a pretty damn good one, uh, I said if you could only have, if you were telling somebody to get their first piece of equipment for a wood shop, more of a proper wood shop, what would you say? And he said a chop saw. Radial arm saw is not on my list. What a radial arm saw allows you to do, unlike a chop saw, the, the blade doesn't move just up and down. It moves back and forth. And a lot lets you work with larger stock than the blade. So wider boards can be, can be cut. And it has, to me, more functionality. And that's why they cost more money. But most of what you will need to do on a homestead, you can do with a chop saw. This, I definitely recommend a plug-in tool. And I recommend that you figure out either you buy a table for it or you have some sort of a steady base that you, if you're going to be moving it around where you can move it to. The nice thing about them is they are not that heavy. They're not that big deal to move. And you can set them up with like a, a you know, a, a folding table on a job site or out in an area. You just need to have power there for it. But absolutely, I think you should look at having a chop saw. The next one is a nail gun. I, I don't really have this in order, but if I did, Instead of being in the middle of the list, it would be damn near at the bottom of it. It's very useful. And again, I think every homestead should have at least one of these tools on the homestead. And that, if you don't have it right away, you can't afford it right away, it should be your goal. Now, here's the deal with nail guns. There, there's two primary types of nail guns. There's, there's nail guns that are electric, uh, electric pneumatic, actually, and pneumatic. And what I mean by that is... There's pure electric nail guns, but they're always small. They're always like brad nailers and things like that, um, where they use 100% electronics to, to drive a nail. And it's for really intricate finishing work. And I, 
I don't really use those because I, that's not kind of the homestead level type of thing with the type of stuff we're talking about today. Then you have the pneumatic, and they are the best, the most flexible, the most affordable, and the most widely available. And you can get a pneumatic gun that does a little finishing nails. You can get a pneumatic gun that drives three and a half inch, big old heavy duty nails, and everything in between, and even bigger than three and a half inch. Then when you go to a job site and you see uh, contractors framing up a house and they're slapping nail guns and you're in pop, 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 that's that's your pneumatic air guns using an air compressor. I like them, and I think that if you have an air compressor, they make a lot of sense. And I, I kind of put on the list as an as an add-on uh, an air compressor, and we'll talk about that in, uh, in in just a second because I think they do a lot more than just run nail guns. However, not everybody has an air compressor, and it would be nice if there was a tool that you didn't need an air compressor for. And it would also be nice if there was a tool that would drive nails that not only did you not need an air compressor for, but it didn't have a cord or a hose hanging off the back of it. That's kind of hard to do. So I don't even know if this is the right term, but I, what I call it is electro-pneumatic. But it's portable pneumatic. So when you think about an air rifle that uses a, a CO2 air rifle or CO2 air pistol, You don't rock around with a giant scuba tank and a, and a hose, and you don't walk around with it attached to an air compressor. It wouldn't be very practical. A little cartridge goes in there. So with nail guns, they call them power packs. And the only electro-pneumatic air gun, or not air gun, electro-pneumatic uh, nail gun that I know of that can actually nail 2x4s is made by a company called Passload. It's Passload nine zero two zero 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 okay it's called a straight nail finisher and it will handle up to two and a half inch 16 gauge nails it only weighs four and a half pounds it does have to use some power packs but i think they're like two of them for like i don't know like 15 bucks or 13 bucks and each power pack will do two thousand nails and they sell the nails in bundles of two thousand so a power pack per nail bundle works out really well this Nail gun, while it is not like a framing level nail gun where you would frame a house with it because you want longer nails and you want heavier gauge nails when you're doing work like that, it will do most homestead work. And even if you're framing something up, you need to go back and let's say reinforce with some real high quality steel screws. You can hit it with that nail gun, get it held together, and free your hands up, which is really nice when you don't have somebody else working with you. It is not inexpensive. It is $276. Bucks. They do not sell this product on Prime on, on, uh, on Amazon, so it's another $13 bucks shipping. I would kind of advise you to think more along the lines of getting yourself into the pneumatic world of nail guns if you're willing to spend the money and get a compressor. But I'm about to tell you how to get a hell of a lot more flexibility with a compressor for not a lot more money. It's going to cost a little more, but not a lot more money. The best value in pneumatic air guns that I have found, and I have looked really, really hard, is by a company called Freeman. Um, they have 306 customer reviews on Amazon, and a four-and-a-half-star rated out of that many reviews is pretty damn good. Um, it would have 85, 95, 90... 93%, I'm sorry, uh, 94% either four or five star. Not, see, and when I see that, 
I, I realize that that amount of people outweigh the negative reviews to a great deal. When I see like 30% five star and like 30% four star, and then I see negative reviews, I'm like, yeah, that, that could be the case. But what you usually find if you start reading the negative reviews, there are people that are they don't they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Because one of the things you have to understand when you're, re you're reading the Amazon reviews, they don't know what they're doing. They're asking the tool to do something that it won't do, uh, and the manufacturer never said it would do. They're bitching about the shipping, which doesn't really affect the quality of the tool at all. They're bitching because they found out it was made in China when they didn't want something made in China because they didn't read, things like that. So Freeman makes a framing finishing combo kit. It's four different nail guns. It has a 21-degree full-head framing nailer. This is... Stuff that you would use for real heavy-duty framing. It'll shoot nails from two to three and a half inches. It has a um, uh, an angle finish nailer uh, that will put nails from one and a quarter to two and a half inches. So that basically does what the other tool that I just recommended does. It has a brad nailer that'll use brads from five eighths to two inches for doing finishing work, and it has a narrow column stapler. Now this uses crown staples. Uh, one quarter inch uh, in in width, and it'll use half inch to one and five eighth inch. So if you're not familiar with what I mean there, they're just basically a big wire staple. And I think the reason they call them crown staples is a lot of people use them when they install crown molding. But they're very useful for a lot of things like, oh, I don't know, um, hardware cloth or fencing work. They're not the greatest thing for that. But again, instead of sitting there trying to hold something up while you try to hammer in a, 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 a fencing nail, you can thump, thump, thump. Now it's held up. Now you have your hands free, and now you can switch over and put heavier hardware on it. So this is extremely flexible, and it's $203 bucks on Prime. To go with it, the, the lowest-cost air compressor that I'm comfortable recommending for using with nail guns is a uh, six-gallon... Uh, air compressor made by Porter Cable. And I'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes, so you can go there for the episode today, 1830, and, and pull up the show notes, and you can click over and look at all this stuff. And a lot of this stuff is sold at Home Depot and Lowe's. If you can get a better deal locally, I love when you guys shop my links on Amazon, but I'm, I'm doing this mostly today so you can see what I'm talking about. Porter Cable uh, compressor, and I'd go ahead and get it with the accessory kit. And it has all the, the hose and the little doodads and blowers and stuff, is uh, $140. Bucks. So if, if we put those two together, you end up with $343. And now you've got four different nail guns that do four different things really well. Instead of one that does things sort of okay, but doesn't really go to the heavy duty and certainly doesn't come down to lighter duty work. And you don't need power packs, and it uses kind of industry standard nails, uh, unlike the pass load, uh, which has to use papered nails. So why do I recommend the pass load is something you consider at $276 bucks when getting all of this is only an extra, what, $60-ish? Because the pass load doesn't have a cord coming out of the back of it. And if you need to do work in certain situations, that's really nice. That said, I do not own one. I don't own one. I do own the the, uh, the other ones, the uh, pneumatics made by Freeman because I had an air compressor. And it just made sense when I looked at that for 200 bucks to say, yeah, this gives me so much advantage. 
the the beauty of a nail gun is how much faster you can get work done with it. That that's really what it comes down to. They're also inherently safe. I think people that have never used a nail gun have kind of a a phobia of them sometimes if you've never used one because you don't know how it works. You see stupid things on TV. Remember Lethal Weapon where the guy shoots the dude in the head with the nail gun and all. Um, the only way you can do that is if the person that's there will let you push the gun against their head because the way these guns work is they have basically uh, a safety mechanism built into them. You push the gun down and there's a tip where the nail comes out. And that tip, when you push it, actually retracts in a little bit from the weight of you pushing against it. And that actually makes sure that the nail actually shoots all the way in and goes flush. And it takes a little bit of experience to get good with that. And then after that, you pull the trigger and then the nail goes in. So if you just hold up a nail gun and start pulling the trigger like you're going to shoot it at somebody, that's not going to work. You'd have to jerry-rig it to get it to do that. Okay, so they're, they're actually inherently safe because unless you put it on something or, yeah, I guess if you have a one-inch board and a four-inch nail and you put your hand underneath it, you can nail your hand to the board. Uh, but overall, they are a very safe tool to use. Though, you know, using eye protection, hearing protection, I think stands to be a good advice with all of these tools we're talking about today. But the Freeman, again, it's the Freeman uh, framing finishing combo. And if I find a better deal... I'll let you know. But that's the best deal I found on air guns. And again, um, 90 some odd percent, five and five and four star reviews. I'll, I'll say this too about some of the equipment that I recommend, like the entry level DeWalt drill, like the Freeman nail guns. If you were a contractor that was going out and using your tools every single day, it makes sense to buy higher level commercial grade equipment. Because you depend on it, and it's getting the use that warrants the quality. For most of us, if we have a nail gun set like this, we might use each one of those guns four or five times a year for a couple days each time, if we're lucky. You might find that some of the nails, like the, the kind of the middle one you hardly ever use, or the staple one you hardly ever use, depending on what type of work you do. So it's just sitting there. So... I think this kind of consumer level but higher quality stuff is the way to go for most of us. And it generally works out well for me. I'll just put it to you that way. So next up, an air compressor. Um, you know, my dad ran a tire shop. He had this huge, like, you know, couple thousand dollar giant air compressor. And I, I'd love to have something like that today. Um, but, but Porter Cable makes a great little air compressor for 140 bucks with free shipping on Prime. And it's a little pancake compressor. That means the compressor sits on top, the tank is underneath it, and it's kind of pancake-shaped. And for running a nail gun, it's all you really need. Again, if you were on a job site, you might want to move up to a higher-capacity uh, tank. Because the way, it, and I think some people don't even understand how an air compressor works. And sometimes I take for granted that people know this stuff. So a compressor, you know, a little machine that's actually the compressor, and it pumps, and it builds up pressure inside the tank. And once it reaches a certain target pressure, it will stop running and just hold air. And then you draw it, and when it goes below a certain threshold, it'll kick in and it'll build the pressure back up. So if you're doing high-volume construction... And in some cases, you even have maybe two or three pieces of, of equipment running off a single uh, compressor, you know, framing a whole house or something like that. And, and guys are having to wait for that compressor to build back up 
to shoot nails, it becomes not only a pain in the ass, it becomes costly. But for, I think, most of us that are out doing homestead work, a six-gallon compressor will get the job done just fine. Again, it always has for me. The nice thing with a six-gallon compressor is it's it's really portable, really, really portable, lightweight. Um, it's something you can put in the back of your truck. If you have a, a Stephen Harris battery bank like I do in my truck, you can take it just about anywhere you go. It'll run off the inverter in the truck. It'll do a great job for you. Uh, it's awesome. They also make some smaller three-gallon um, pancake compressors. They're useful little tools. They're not horrible. But to me, if you're going to be shooting nails with a tool or using an impact driver with an air compressor, you're better off going to a heavier gauge. If you wanted to go up in size, I would say go straight from six to about 20 gallons. Like that kind of that's the sweet spot uh, in between there. And I guess there's two, two I would recommend you look at in the 20-gallon range. Porter Cable makes a great 20-gallon air compressor. It's more of a shop air compressor. Yeah, you can put it on a truck or whatever, but it's not... It's not as easy to move around. It's nowhere near as portable. Uh, it's kind of a stand-up, kind of looks like a big grill tank uh, style design. And it's got wheels and a roller on it. It's about 300 bucks. DeWalt, as you move into heavier-duty compressors, you might want to consider going to a higher-end manufacturer. And DeWalt does make a great 20-gallon uh, portable compressor, but it's 500 bucks. So you got to decide whether it's really worth an extra $200 for you um, For, it's not just that it's yellow and says the wall, by the way. It is a higher quality tool, um, but the Porter Cable tool is a damn good tool. What I would not buy, there's a lot of stuff in the 20-gallon range. It's like $140, $150, uh, maybe like Campbell and, and things like that. And uh, generally, those just don't last. They, they, you're asking for a lot of work, uh, central uh, pneumatic, people like that. They just You're asking for a lot of work out of a a small motor to push 20 gallons of air into a tank up to 120 PSI or what have you. And uh, you're, you're better off as you go up in size, going up in the quality of your equipment to at least, like I said, Porter Cable. And there's other manufacturers of that quality, so that's an example. If I was going to buy one tomorrow, if I was like, I, I, I don't want just my little six-gallon uh, air compressor, and I was, and remember, I bleed the Walt yellow with certain things, uh, with brand loyalty, I would not spend the extra 200 bucks. I would I would buy the Porter Cable uh, air compressor. It's it's more than sufficient for homestead use. Compressors are not just for shooting nails and running other pneumatic tools, though. They are extremely valuable with just cleaning things out. So here's a a great example. So I run above ground sprinklers because I can't run drip. The other day I set up my sprinklers. I I run three of the above ground kind of whirly sprinklers. The, I don't know what you call them, rainbirds or whatever. They they just spin in a circle and water just shoots out. And uh, I run three of them in a chain, and that covers a pretty big area to spot irrigate where I need things done. So I set up my sprinklers, and I turn them on, and the last one's just kind of half-assing it. It's barely spinning. The water's coming out half as far as the other ones. I shut it off, and I go unscrew it from its, its stand, and I look, and there's gunk in it. I go inside my shop, fire up my little six-gallon air compressor, get my little shooter, and start, and I blow it out. It takes... It took me longer to walk to the shop and back than it took me to, to do the work with the compressor. Walk back out, screw it back on, popped a little bit of silicone oil in the, the, the spinny thing for some lubrication as well while I was at it, turned it on, ran like brand new. Doing that without a compressor would have been difficult. What, are you going to sit there and blow on it? 
or, or, or sit there and try to dig it out with a wire, and these things are, you know, four inch long arms on it, and you got a little tiny bitty hole, and you're trying to, no way to take it apart. But an air compressor fixed it like that. Um, you know, we taught, had Hummel Mechanic on recently, he was talking about air filters. You know, a lot of times I'll take a look at my air filter, and it's not really ready for plate replacement yet, but it's, it's kind of dirty. You just take your air compressor and blow out, blow from the inside out, and blow out your air compressor or your air filter and throw it back in your vehicle. Um, you have stuff stuck in something like little bits of grit or whatever, blow it out of there. There's so much you can do with an air compressor. I really think it's kind of an essential homestead tool, and it makes nail guns really practical as well. Because uh, even though I'm recommending you take a look at the other one, it's kind of a specialized thing. You'll know it if you need it type of thing. The next tool is an impact driver. And, um, yes, these are bigger versions when you go to get your cars done in a year, right, uh, for taking lug nuts off and things like that. But I'm talking more of a small uh, cordless, uh, again, 18-volt DeWalt's what I have, impact driver. And a lot of people don't see the need for them because they have a drill. And I really was always kind of that opinion, too, right? Impact driver, it's nice, but, you know, I can drive screws with my drill. And that's why I said, if you only gave me one tool, man, that's, I use that drill, I bet you three to four times a week I grab my drill. I mean, that's how valuable of a tool it is for me. But an impact driver, when you use it to drive screws, and it was John Dowie that kind of tied me onto this, you're like, oh, I get it. I get it. Because what it does is it has kind of this impact going on. It just looks like it's spinning, but there's an impact. And that actually is much better for driving screws and, and bolts and things like that. And I think it's pretty self-explanatory why you'd want one. This is a tool that I think I slide always to the side of a rechargeable, uh, portable tool instead of a plug-in one. Plug-in ones are fine. If you have a shop and need for it, that's fine. But, you know, we all can only have so many tools. We only have so much budget of space and money. So I once I found out how great they were, I went out and got an 18-volt DeWalt impact tool, and boom, I'm good and happy. And I think it really makes sense to have. The more you do with driving screws and, and hex head bolts and things like that, the more you'll appreciate having one. You, you really will. Um, next is a bench grinder. And I run my bench grinder with a, a grinding wheel on one side and a polishing wheel on the other. And there's just so much practical use of a grinder. Sharpening axes, fixing burrs on tools. Uh, the polishing wheel has plenty of applications as well. And it's just one of those tools that's kind of too inexpensive not to have. Mine is a DeWalt, um, and it's again, it's just kind of I do have that brand loyalty first. Uh, but I have a six-inch DeWalt bench grinder to probably be something my my grandson will give to his kids. Uh, it'll probably last that long unless something happens to it. And I think I paid about ninety bucks for it, and I'll have a link to where you can look for it on Amazon. This is a tool. Again, where I don't really recommend going with like the cheap off brands. Um, when makes like a six inch bench grinder, it's like 40 bucks. Um, it, it'll work, but it is a tool that really you're asking for a lot of work out of. And I think you're better off going with it with a better brand, something with a little bit more power. Um, and I think that it'll do a lot more for you in that regard. But the main thing that I use a bench grinder for is shaping pieces of metal um, and polishing metal and sharpening rough, sharp things like a axe or a garden tool or something like that or uh, lawnmower blades and things like that. And it's just it's the perfect tool for the job. 
And uh, so it's not the tool generally to make a, a, a implement razor sharp, but make it cutting sharp for the task at hand. And I, I think it's one of those tools that you, you don't realize how much you can do with it until you have it. And when you're like, oh, what do I do about that? Oh, I can just grind that off or what have you. So definitely a great tool. So the next tool is a rotary tool, or as they're generally called, a Dremel. And that's kind of like uh, a Xerox machine and a copy machine, maybe the same thing, but don't have to be. Like we've called every, like we don't really talk about that much anymore because now everybody has a printer and you can print as many copies as you want. But back in the day, you know, you had a document that somebody spent like two hours typing and getting ready to go and you would go to the Xerox machine and Xerox it, right? Well, the Xerox machine might not have been called the Xerox. But because they were the most well-known copy manufacturer, they call all of them a, a, a Xerox. That's kind of how Dremel was. Dremel was kind of the first brand that came out with a really great rotary tool. And now a lot of different people make them. But I still find Dremels to be kind of the best tool that there is. When you start looking at all the little different accessory tips that you can put on a Dremel tool, you start to realize how valuable it is. Fine polishing of certain things. And it's just little things that if you didn't have it, you could probably do, but it would be more of a pain in the ass. Here's, here's another real-world example. And this wasn't critical or anything, but it was just nice. I bought a nice little salt box made out of olive wood. Now, a salt box is a little container with a lid that you keep kosher salt in, for instance. And when you're doing your cooking, you can rich pull the lid off, grab a pinch of salt, and salt your, your food that you're cooking. And it's, it's something that most you know, kind of experienced cooks prefer to have around rather than a salt shaker or whatever because you have much more control. You're always salting things for sweating vegetables and stuff like that. So I bought this little salt box, and I figured if I'm going to have one, it might as well be nice. In fact, I had one, and it got lost in the move, so I ordered a new one from Amazon. It gets here, and I take it out of the box, and I have to pry the lid off with a butter knife. It fits that tight. So I'm like, well, maybe the expanded whatever from shipping. And I figure I'll push it in and pull it out a couple times. I do that a couple times. It's not happening. It's just tight. I mean, you got to shove it on there, and then you got to pry it off with a butter knife like you're using a screwdriver. So I just go outside, grab my Dremel tool, plug it in, and just take the, the top itself, not the bowl. I don't want to waller the bowl out at all. And the little ridge that actually fits into that point, I just took a light sand to it, and I just sanded it all around it, kind of evenly free sanded it. Brought it in the house, better but not quite. Took it back out, gave it one more little light trip around, boom, it works. Now, should the manufacturer of that device send it to me in a defective condition? No. But was it easier to spend a minute with my Dremel on it than to get a return label, send it back, get another one that might have the same problem? When in the end, it was a really nice little piece of equipment that I wanted, and I didn't want to go. I wanted it now on my countertop and start using it. That's an example of, I don't know what else you would do that other than manually sitting there and sanding it down. Um, if you have something that's in a tight space that needs to be cut, it's either metal or wood, It, with, a, with a Dremel, you can usually get in there with a little blade and you can cut it. There's just so many things you, you can do with a Dremel. Um, I do projects using the Mora Number no. 2 knife, the Mora Number no. 2 Classic. And uh, what I do with those is I take the Mora and I put it in a vise. And I take a little uh, torch and I, I basically burn the paint off of it. And it kind of chars. And then I take, uh, um, it's basically like a, a plastic brush that you can get as a Dremel accessory. It's kind of a sanding brush, but it's not really, really rough. 
and I take all of the char off of the handle and I either take it off lightly and leave it kind of like this burnt color and I seal those handles up or I take them down to the bare wood and I stain them and seal them up. And I've also done things with the Dremel where I take like uh, a sanding disc and, and, and score into the handles. So I am getting the more wood shop level stuff, but like I don't know what, again, I don't know what else you would be able to do it as easily with. And there's just been plenty of times where I've had something that needed to be cut and you can get a rotary cutter in there and you can cut it and nothing else to really do it well. So a Dremel tool is something I really recommend. Now, larger stuff that needs to be cut and other things that need to be grinded off and stuff that don't work for a bench grinder, an angle grinder. And uh, I have a DeWalt 18-volt angle grinder, right? You see a pattern forming here. But, it's be again, it's because that's what I have. This is a tool that makes sense. They definitely have more horsepower if you go to a plug-in electric, but I don't need that much more horsepower, and I got plenty of batteries and chargers for the DeWalt, so I just got a DeWalt uh, angle grinder. But th this is another tool that you don't realize how valuable it is until you have it. Like when somebody locks something with a padlock and uh, doesn't know where they put the keys, you know, I'm just saying that can happen sometimes. Um, you know who you are that used to be here, and uh, you take that angle grinder and just cut the lock off or cut the hasp off or, or what have you. I mean, it, it just you can use it for cutting. You can use it for grinding. Uh, you can use it for finishing. If you do any welding, it's great for cleaning up welds, uh, though some people say if you need to clean up your welds, you're not a good welder. Uh, maybe I'm not a good welder then. But, I mean, again, I'm not trying to uh, be craftsman of the year or anything here. I'm trying to get things done on my homestead. I've used them for things like cutting hog panels. So hog panels generally come in 16-foot or cattle panels, 16-foot lengths, and you might need to cut them down. So I've done that with them. Or if you're building something with, with cattle panels, you got that little one side's flush, the other side it sticks out, and like you walk by it, cut your freaking arm open, you need stitches. That's how bad it'll cut you. You can nub those right off with an angle grinder. They're, they're just a fantastic tool, polishing, grinding, cutting. And the last one that sounds totally different than everything we talked about, but it's, it's so valuable, I don't think your homestead can go without it, is a chainsaw. Um, I like one and only one so far. Now, I haven't used anybody else's electric rechargeable chainsaw, and it's Oregon's Power Now Chainsaw, and it is an awesome chainsaw. And I like it so much, they have a new version of it that you can buy as a bear tool without the batteries. It's like 200 bucks. I'm probably going to buy the, that. And just say two is one and one is none. That version has a toolless uh, chain tightening and toolless chain sharpening, and you don't even have to take the chain off the saw to sharpen the chain. It is not as powerful as even, let's say, a gas-powered pull-in pro. Okay, it's not. But it will do most of what you need a chainsaw to do in a homesteading environment if you're not you know, going out and felling big oaks and hickories. If you're doing basic cleanup work and occasionally dropping a tree, you know, up to, you know, 12 inches in diameter, I'd say, uh, or, or down, and that takes a little bit of skill to be able to, if you, if you don't have the skill to do that with this saw, you probably shouldn't be dropping a tree that size. I'll put it to you that way. Um, I love that tool. That said, I think everybody should have a gas saw as well. And then you need to learn about chainsaw maintenance, chain sharpening, all that good stuff. My brand of choice for chainsaws is Husqvarna. And I was always the guy that bought the steel marketing 
And I think Steel does have really great service at their authorized uh, resellers, and I think they make a, a really great saw. But after talking to enough guys that cut trees for a living and going and saying, just assuming, I, I assume you prefer steel over everything else, they'd say no, and they'd give me four or five different saws that were good saws. McCullough was another name that would come up often. And for the price-to-value numbers, the good commercial-grade Husqvarna saw is kind of the way to go. That said, if I had the choice of having no chainsaw, or having a $100 Walmart pulling Wild Thing Pro or whatever, I would definitely take that over no chainsaw at all. Chainsaws get in and do work that you just can't do with other saws safely or well, especially when it comes to cutting timber and trees. But I've used them for other things as well. Um, I've used them for cutting landscape timbers and 4x4s and things like that. Though I'll say this. When you start cutting landscape timbers with a chainsaw, it tends to, I don't know exactly why with the treatment of, of them or whatever, but it's really, really dense, and it tends to dull your chains really, really quickly. Now, this Oregon Power Nile, that's why I love it. It has a little lever. You run it. You pull on the lever. Sparks fly out of it. The chain is razor sharp. Eventually, the chain wears out. You need to buy a new chain. It doesn't matter because, again, if you're felling trees every day, you wouldn't use this saw. But if you're, you know, for cleanup, it's lightweight, limbing, it's great. They also now make a plug-in version of their saw with auto sharpen. That saw is a little beast. It really is. I bought one of those right away because they're affordable. It has an 18-inch bar, runs on standard, you know, 120-volt electric. It's 15-amp. Um, it has a self-sharpening. It has the toolless chain tensioner. So with chainsaws, generally, you loosen the, the cover, and then there's a little screw that you have to go in from the side, and you go in there with a screwdriver, or they make a tool that's a screwdriver and a wrench. You go in there, and you turn it until your chain tightens up, and then you tighten back up your cover. And anybody who's used a chainsaw knows that when your chainsaw stops cutting like it's supposed to, and it's been sharpened recently, it's probably not the chain is dull, What happens inevitably in every chainsaw I've ever owned, from, from steel to Husqvarna to cheap-ass Poland's to these Oregons, the bar from vibration begins to kind of retract a little bit, and the chain gets loose and it won't cut worth a damn. So you, you have to you know, constantly, as you're working with a saw, in addition to oil and gas and other maintenance, tighten your chain. The way this works, it has basically a hand-turnable... Um, chainsaw cover and tensioner and you turn the one to loosen the cover you turn the other to tighten the chain and then you turn it back and you tighten the chain so you get a saw that's not quite cutting with one of these you check your chain tension uh, it's a little loose tighten it up look at it i could use a little bit of an edge you got it razor sharp you're back to cutting the only problem i have with plug-in electric saws is the cord hanging out behind you it can get in the way it can be a pain in the butt and you got to have power but I use my plug-in Oregon saw more than I use the battery-powered one anymore and more than I use my gas Husqvarna. And, and this is kind of how that works. If I have to go cut a tree or something or take a limb off, right, I take my, my rechargeable one and I do that work. I cut it into pieces that like fit in the trailer for my tractor and I pull it back behind the, the, the garage and I take out my plug-in one right there. So I'm bucking right out of my trailer And I've got much more horsepower out of that plug-in saw. I would say that that plug-in saw will run with most 18-inch gas saws. 
It, it is amazing the power that that little saw has. And for 140 bucks with free shipping, it's awesome. So those are the tools that I recommend. I, I want to kind of finish up with some thoughts here. I am going to have a lot of links to Amazon today so that you can see the products I recommend that I'm talking about and options that I think are valid. But I, I don't really care where you buy your tools. I just want you to buy tools that work for you. Okay? So I want to give you some th thoughts on pawn shops and low-end brands as well. On pawn shops, I think that a lot of times you can get some really good deals at pawn shops. But you've got to know what you're looking for, and you've got to take certain things into account. For instance, I go into a pawn shop one day, and uh, there's a DeWalt drill. Looks like it was maybe used for a couple months by some contractor that ended up needing money because he wasn't getting paid till Friday and then never came back. It was about a $200 drill with the, the whole kit. It would be about a $200 drill. And uh, my son needed one. So I'm like, well, I'll, I'll get it from him. So I asked the guy what he wants for it. He said $140. So I take it out. I look at it. I look at the battery. The battery looks kind of dinged up and banged up. I'm like, have you have you actually like tried recharging this or anything? No, we know we don't, we don't really worry about that. We we plugged it in and it worked and it's still had charging. So I put in the drill and yeah, the drill works. I looked at it, I said, you know, a lot of times when guys pawn these these drills, they know you'll give them more with a, a battery pack. So they take kind of an older battery pack and they 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 throw it in there and they keep their good batteries. They take like their oldest battery. 140 seems a little steep for this since brand new. You know, they're they're around 200 bucks. You know, would you take uh, 100 bucks for it? He's like, uh, I could do 120. I'm like, nah. And I go to walk out the door, and he goes, 110. I'm like, yeah, done. So I got that drill for, you know, he's asking 140. I got it for 110 dollars, and I knew the value of the drill. Now I knew that kind of because I'd been looking to get one for my son for a present anyway, and we just happened like we went to go to a movie and we had the showtime wrong. We ended up with like a 30 minutes to kill. There was a pawn shop across the, the 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 parking lot, so we went and checked it out. Like that was by happenstance, and I knew the price. But today, when everybody has a smartphone, you go to a pawn shop and you see a price on something, Google that shit, look it up on Amazon or Home Depot or Lowe's. And tell the guy flat out, you know, you're asking 10 bucks under what a brand new one is. I can't pay that. Because those guys just throw prices on there and hope somebody will pay for them. You can always find deals. But look at the condition of the equipment when you're buying it used. Uh, know the manufacturer's warranty uh, uh, policies. Most of the time, that equipment cannot be uh, handled under warranties, etc. And expect that you're going to have to buy a battery for any kind of a rechargeable tool. Most of the plug-in stuff, you know... Never buy it without, even if they say, oh, we test everything. Well, then I'm not buying it unless I can plug it in over there and make sure it works. Most of the plug-in tools are just fine. But again, look up, what would I get? What would I pay for this tool if I was buying it new with a one-year manufacturer warranty? Use that information to your advantage. On low-end brands, like I consider Black & Decker a low-end brand, even though DeWalt, DeWalt actually owns Black & Decker now. Um But that is their low-end brand, right? That's like, we need we needed to have that piece of the market, so they, they bought out Black & Decker. Um, when you start looking at, like, Harbor Freight tools and stuff like that, I think you'll find that you'll generally get better results out of those types of lower-end tools with the plug-in tools versus the rechargeable tools. Though, that said, even Black & Decker has gotten pretty good with their rechargeable light-duty uh, power tools and things like that. Just expect that if you do that, there's a couple things you have to think about. Number one, that tool won't have the power of a higher-end, heavier-duty tool. 
So you have to be careful how much you ask out of it. And when the tool tells you, you've pushed me to my limit, give it a rest. Watch it for, you know, things like it heating up and all. And expect that you'll have failures. So I have no problem with the person that says, well, I have a really good, you know, electric drill, uh, rechargeable drill. But sometimes I have people when we're doing work or sometimes I need to drill pilot holes. And then I'm going from driver to uh, drill bit, driver to drill, and I have to keep making that change. So you can buy a cheap rechargeable drill for 30 bucks. The, it's fine for drilling pilot holes with, with a small dr drill bit, a, a thin drill, like a one-eighth inch or something. And it'll drill just about anything like that. And so that's kind of where I think a lot of this stuff you know, pays better dividends. And then there's also the concept of, well, would it be better to go to Harbor Freight and buy the three tools that I say that you can do almost anything with, a drill, a reciprocating saw, and a circular saw, and maybe even a, a jigsaw? and have cheap versions of those tools, or go to Walmart and buy Black & Decker or whatever's cheaper than that, and have those three to four tools in a cheap version, or have nothing, because you can't afford the better tools yet. And the answer is you're better off with those low-end tools than not having the tools, if you're especially on a homestead, where you're always trying to jerry-rig stuff because you don't have the right tool for the job. So that that's kind of how I view that. My final thoughts is don't, Don't feel like, Jack said I have to have a bench rider. I don't have a bench rider. I don't have 130 bucks right now, damn it. And I, I can't afford, you know, I can't afford a bench rider. So I'm going to go buy a $20 bench. No, don't, don't do that. But what I want you to do to really evaluate your needs for power tools is every time you have to get something done or every time you do a project, say to yourself, self, what would make this project easier and go faster? And when you realize, okay, yes, uh, I could have, you know, Two, three hundred bucks into a nail gunner, maybe even a little more buy, if I had to buy a compressor too. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely the case. But if I have four or five projects lined up where I'm going to have to use a lot of nails, uh, or I'm going to have to use a lot of screws if I don't use nails and I'm going to screw it all together. And you look at the cost of nails versus screws alone in one project, your nail gun pays for itself, right? And then in the time, if you, if you start thinking about swinging a hammer, for four days, you know, two weekends in a row, four days. You can get the same work done in a day. What are those three days worth to you? hundred bucks a piece? Well, now you're even. And I know that only works if you have the time, but that's, that's how to think about. See, what power tools are is force multipliers. They allow us to do more work with less of our own energy by using electrical, mechanical energy. And that's how we should think about it. So hopefully this gave you a good idea of what, what to add to your homestead. Again, I'll fill in the show notes with a whole bunch of links on a lot of this stuff that I recommend. Um, next up, you know, you guys, if you want to support my show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. I'll leave it at that today. And you can also help support me by doing all your Amazon shopping, not just for power tools, at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz. TSPAZ.com. From TSPAZ, you can click and go straight to Amazon and buy, I don't know, Tiddlywinks if you want to, and we get, we get credit for that. That really supports our show. Um, if you want to see our item of the day, there's a link right there. Click that and you'll see, uh, today's article again is on the DeWalt entry level drill. 
Uh, and then there's a link to every review we've ever done, and I will be putting it all in catalog format once we have enough to make it worth doing that. So uh, please consider stopping, shopping with TSPAS. And if you're going to invest in any of these new tools, if you can get them for less money locally, go ahead. But if you can get them for about the same money without leaving the house, shipped to you on Amazon Prime, man, do that. If you're not a Prime member yet, consider becoming one. Uh, when they raised the price from like 80 bucks a year to 100 I didn't even care. I didn't even think about it. I went... With as much value as I get out of my Prime membership, the streaming videos, music, the free shipping on so much stuff, I, I they're losing money selling me Prime, so I'm I'm fine with that. And uh, so that's something to definitely consider. And then most stuff you can get within one to two days. And Prime members now, there's a lot of things that I can get the same day I order it, or free one day shipping. So I mean, I order it today, get it tomorrow. But I've seen a lot of stuff on Prime for an extra couple of bucks. I can get it today. Tell you a creative way that I saw somebody use that. So when we were out at Permaculture Voices 3, we were at this hotel by the airport, and there's like really not much around there for shopping and all. So you're stuck with the, for, for having, you know, adult beverages at night, the bar prices. And bar prices are like the cheap wine. Like the stuff you could buy in a store for like $5 a magnum was like 10 bucks a glass, and a good wine was like $13, $14 a glass. Beers were like eight, nine bucks. So a couple of the guys that were there snapped to the fact that there was free one-day, or not free, it was like low-cost one-day shipping for Prime members on beer. And they were ordering micro-brews delivered to the hotel lobby. And then, you know, instead of going in the bar, they were going outside and whatever on the, 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 the walk area. And they were getting their beer brought to the hotel, which was certainly less than taking a cab or an Uber to the supermarket. So there's a lot of flexibility and creativity you can use with a Prime membership. That's just another example. And I'm bringing that to you because, again, with my Amazon items of the day, I'm trying to bring you knowledge and value add, even if you don't need anything on Amazon that given day or need that product at all. Next up, remember you can support the whole community by shopping at tspbiz.com. That is the TSP Business Directory. Today's supporting member of the Business Directory, Thoughtful Harvest. They source the finest U.S. grown ingredients, use classic culinary techniques to make exceptional products you'll love and trust. And the products help support U.S. farmers. And of course, that is the awesome chef Keith Snow Company, uh, Thoughtful Harvest. And I use his stuff in my kitchen all the time. Remember, tspbiz.com or when you're on the site, just click on Business Directory and you You can have your business listed in the directory for as little as five bucks for six months. It's really a great deal. Check it out today. If you're an entrepreneur and you're in this community, you should be reaching out to the whole community with the business directory. Uh, we do have people telling me all the time that they're getting customers out of our directory. I think that's awesome. So um, today's closing song was sent to me by uh, Jake out of Tennessee, and it's uh, by a guy named Jack Johnson, who I've heard of and I've heard some music by, but really never dug much into. But I, I like this song. It's called Traffic in the Sky. And usually I give you some of the words of the song. I'll let you experience the words of the song for yourself today. I'm actually going to give you words of a poem that this song uh, made me think of. So the, the whole concept to me with Traffic in the Sky is he, he sees the kids playing in shadows on the ground and looking up at traffic's in the air. And everybody seems to be focused up and out instead of down and in. No one really seems to appreciate the important things in life. Everybody's focused with going somewhere, doing something, being somewhere else, instead of really seeing the value in what we have in the earth right under our feet. And when I heard that song Jake sent me, I thought to myself, I know a poem that this makes me think of. And I couldn't remember the name of it, and I could not remember the author of it. But what I could remember 
the last four lines, which I won't give you just yet because I'm going to read the whole poem to you. Don't worry, it's not very long. But I Googled those lines, and apparently this guy's not very popular. He doesn't have a, a book out or anything that I can find. Um, I don't know what book I read in it. It must have been like an allegory or something, a collection of works or something. And I did find a book, find a book that had it in it. Uh, I can put a link to that, too, in the show notes for you as well. Um, and I have a link to where you can actually get this poem in, in text. It's on a website called The Poet's Haven, established in 1997. And I, I, and the, the poetry entry was in 2004. I know that this this author and this poem are much older than that. This would have to be back into the mid-90s that I read this. I, I can tell you it's almost definite that I would have read this before I met Dorothy. We're talking like 93, 94, and I have no idea when it was actually written. But it's called Cosmos by C. David Hay. And think about what I said about gazing outward and away instead of downward within and seeing the value. Here's that song. The heavens are a solitude. I dream of stellar flight. And marvel at infinity with countless points of light. Celestial diamonds flashing fire from galaxies sublime where nebula drift endlessly in boundless space and time. Planets sin and, planets sin and solar glow and meteors blaze green. Comets wander cosmic trails past stars we've never seen. Yet as we gaze at distant worlds, mankind has clearly shown he, failed to cool, he has failed to t truly comprehend the beauty of his own. And I don't think anything could be more true. We have all these dreams of grandeur. And I think mankind for a long time has his dreams of exploring the stars. And I, I know when I was a little boy, I wanted to grow up and be an astronaut. But if you look at the way we've treated our planet and the people on it, I don't know that we have any business in worlds beyond our own just yet. We need to fully comprehend the beauty of our own world. And I think the Jack Johnson song ties into that nicely with the same theme, but it also really kind of drives home, well, the place to start is with what's right under your feet. Jack Johnson seems like a cool guy. Good recommendation by Jake. I hope you enjoy it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's traffic in the sky and it doesn't seem to be getting much better There's kids playing games on the pavement, drawing waves on the pavement mm -hmm. Shadows of the planes on the pavement mm -hmm. It's enough to make me cry, but that don't seem like it will make you feel better well, Maybe it's a dream and if I scream it will burst at the seams Whole place would fall into pieces and then they'd say Well, how could we have known? I'll tell them it's not so hard to tell. Nah, nah, nah. You keep adding stone, soon the water will be lost in the well. Mm. And puzzle pieces in the ground. No one ever seems to be digging. Instead, they're looking up towards the heavens with their eyes on the heavens. Mm -hmm. The shadows on the way to the heavens mm -hmm. It's enough to make me cry That don't seem like it will make you feel better The answers could be found We could learn from digging down But no one ever seems to be digging Instead they'll say Well how could we have known 
could we have known? I'll tell them it's not so hard to tell. Nah, nah, nah. You keep that in stone. Soon the water will be lost in the well. Of wisdom all around, but no one ever seems to listen. They're talking about the plans on the paper, building up from the pavement.、Mm-hmm. The shadows from the scrapers on the pavement.、Mm-hmm. It's enough to make me sigh, but that don't seem like it will make it feel better. The words are all around, but the words are only sounds, and no one ever seems to listen. Instead, they'll say. Well, how could we have known? I'll tell them it's really not so hard to tell. Nah, nah, nah. You keep adding stones, soon the water will be lost in the well, lost in the well.